Hi, this is Professor Jim Paisley. Are you tired of the five-minute news clips presented every night by the talking heads on the national news? Would you like to know what is really going on? I have taught American and European history for the past 27 years. I find it fascinating how history truly does repeat itself. When we watch the evening news, no one seems to know anything about how current events are all tied to the past. Critical race theory, crime in our cities, federal versus state powers, the Arab-Israeli conflict? How about international relations with Russia, China, and Europe? On my shows, I give a historical perspective to what is currently happening in our world. Join me weekly to find the true history behind what is happening today. Hi, gang. Our topic for today, Afghanistan. Now, White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on Monday acknowledged the security situation in Afghanistan unfolded at unexpected speed while maintaining that President Biden stands by his decision to withdraw U.S. troops. Heavily armed Taliban fighters swept into Afghanistan's capital of Kabul on Sunday after the government collapsed and the Afghani president fled the country, signaling the end of the United States' 20-year effort to rebuild the nation after the withdrawal of the U.S. military from the region. Now, Sullivan, during an appearance on ABC News' Good Morning America, defended Biden's decision to withdraw troops. He said the president did not think it was inevitable that the Taliban were going to take control of Afghanistan. He thought that the Afghan National Security Forces could step up and fight because we spent 20 years and tens of billions of dollars training them giving them the best equipment, giving them support of U.S. forces for 20 years. He went on to say when push came to shove, they decided not to step up and fight for their country, adding that the president was faced with the question of whether U.S. men and women should be put in the middle of another country's civil war when their own army won't fight to defend them. Now, <clears throat> the answer to this question was no, and that is why he stands by his decision according to Sullivan. Now understand, folks, we supported the Taliban when they fought the Soviet Union. And it came back to bite us, didn't it? We did the same thing in Iran, Libya, and so forth. So history is repeating itself. Now the Taliban is pushing to restore the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, the formal name of the country under the Taliban rule before the militants were ousted by U.S.-led forces in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, which were orchestrated by al-Qaeda, while it was being sheltered by the Taliban. Now, a decade ago, we got Osama bin Laden. We degraded al-Qaeda. We stopped terrorist attacks against the United States from Afghanistan for 20 years, said Sullivan. What the president was not prepared to do was enter a third decade of conflict, flowing in thousands more troops, which was his only other choice to fight in the middle of a civil war that the Afghan army wouldn't fight for itself. He added, we would not do that to America's men and women or their families. And that is why he made the decision to withdraw U.S. forces from Afghanistan this year. Okay, folks, so let's get a few things straightened out right off the bat. With the recent events in Afghanistan, the media has been using the names Taliban and Al-Qaeda almost as if they are the same group. In fact, it was Al-Qaeda that planned and carried out the September 11th attacks on the U.S. The terrorist network had its roots in Afghanistan fighting against the Soviet occupation 
in the 1980s, but is composed mostly of Arabs or Islamic militants from countries other than Afghanistan. On the flip side, the Taliban is made up of ethnic Pashtun Afghans who grew up in refugee camps or religious boarding schools in Pakistan during the Soviet occupation of their homeland. So think of it as Taliban local, Al-Qaeda global. Just that simple. Now according to Amnesty International, the UK version, Afghanistan has a tumultuous recent past. In the last three decades, the country has been occupied by communist Soviet troops and U.S.-led international forces, and in the years in between has been ruled by militant groups and the infamous oppressive Islamic Taliban. Now, folks, I have to tell you who the biggest losers in all this turmoil will be, and that, my friends, is the Afghan women. That is what I find fascinating, fascinating about Mr. Sullivan and the Biden administration's position on all this. How many times have we heard Biden, Pelosi, and the people like AOC harp on the issue of women's rights? Yet here they are putting millions of women in harm's way. Throughout the changing political landscape of Afghanistan in the last 50 years, women's rights have been exploited by different groups for political gain, sometimes being improved, but often being abused. Afghan women were the ones who have lost the most from the war. A young woman by the name of Horia Mozadik was a young girl when Russia invaded Afghanistan in 1979. Horia states, think of women in Afghanistan now, and you'll probably recall pictures in the media of women in full-body burqas, perhaps the famous National Geographic photo of the Afghan girl, or prominent figures murdered for visibly defending women's rights. But it hasn't always been this way. She goes on to say, As a girl, I remember my mother wearing miniskirts and taking us to the cinema. My aunt went to the university in Kabul. Until the conflict of the 70s, the 20th century had seen relatively steady progression for women's rights in the country. Afghan women were first eligible to vote in 1919, only a year after women in the UK were given voting rights and a year before the women in the United States were allowed to vote. In the 1950s, Gender separation was abolished. In the 1960s, a new constitution brought equality to many areas of life, including political participation. But during coups in the Soviet occupation in the 1970s, through civil conflict between Mujahideen groups and government forces in the 80s and 90s, and then under Taliban rule, women in Afghanistan had their rights increasingly rolled back. Now, the Taliban are now notorious for their human rights abuses. The group emerged in 1994 after years of conflict. Many of their members were former Mujahideen fighters who had been trained in Pakistan during Afghanistan's civil war in the 80s and 90s. They came together with the aim of making Afghanistan an Islamic state. The Taliban ruled in Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001. Now, under the Taliban, women and girls were discriminated against in many ways for the crime of simply being born a woman. Now, the Taliban enforced their version of Islamic Sharia law. Women and girls were banned from going to school or studying, banned from working, banned from leaving the house without a male chaperone, banned from showing their skin in public, 
banned from accessing health care delivered by men. With women forbidden from working, health care was virtually inaccessible and banned from being involved in politics or speaking publicly. There were many other ways their rights were denied to them. Women were essentially invisible in public life and imprisoned in their homes. In Kabul, residents were ordered to cover their ground and first floor windows so women inside could not be seen from the street. If a woman left the house, it was in full body veil, or a burqa, accompanied by a male relative. She had no independence. If she disobeyed these discriminatory laws, punishments were harsh. A woman could be flogged for showing an inch or two of skin under her full-body burqa, beaten for attempting to study, stoned to death if she was found guilty of adultery. Rape and violence against women and girls was commonplace. Afghan women were brutalized in law and in nearly every aspect of daily life. In 1996, a woman in Kabul had the end of her thumb cut off for wearing nail polish. Now, according to a 15-year-old girl in Kabul, in 1995, she said, They shot my father right in front of me. It was 9 o'clock at night. They came to our house and told him they had orders to kill him because he allowed me to go to school. The Mujahideen had already stopped me from going to school, but that was not enough. I cannot describe what they did to me after killing my father. Now, it's hard to believe that our national security advisor is now saying we're going to trust them to help us get our people out. The U.S. led an international military campaign intervening in Afghanistan immediately following the attacks on September 11, 2001. World leaders, including those from the U.K. and the U.S.A., regularly cited the need to improve Afghan women's rights as part of the justification for the intervention. Now, the Taliban were ousted from power at the end of 2001, and in the years following international intervention, many schools opened their doors to girls and women who then also went back to work. There was progress towards equality. A new constitution in 2003 enshrined women's rights in it, and in 2009, Afghanistan adopted the Elimination of Violence Against Women law. But the Taliban and other highly conservative insurgent groups still controlled some parts of Afghanistan, and violence and discrimination against women and girls continued all over the country. In 2011, it was named the most dangerous country in which to be a woman. So now let's review a little history about Afghanistan. And most of this information comes from the CIA World Factbook, a great source for information. Now, Ahmad Shah Durrani unified the Pashtun tribes and founded Afghanistan all the way back in 1747. The country served as a buffer between the British and Russian empires until it won its independence from national British control in 1919 following World War I. A brief experiment in democracy ended in 1973 with a coup, and eventually in 1978 there was a communist counter-coup. The Soviet Union invaded in 1979 to support the tottering Afghan communist regime, touching off a long and destructive war. Now think about that, folks. They were there for 10 years. The U.S. was there for 20. The Soviet Union was there for 10 years and couldn't get it done. Yet we stepped in and thought we could fix it. So when the USSR is fighting against the Taliban, 
and they withdrew in 89 under relentless pressure by internationally supported anti-communist Mujahideen rebels. We were supporting the Taliban. That's right, folks, because the Taliban was fighting the Soviet Union, and they'd been fighting for 10 years. We came in and supplied them with the necessary arms to fight against the Soviet Union. Well, we know how that story turned out. Now, a series of subsequent civil wars saw Kabul finally fall in 1996 to the Taliban, a hardline Pakistani-sponsored movement that emerged in 1994 to end the country's civil war and anarchy. Now, as we all know, September 2001, after the 9-11 attacks, President George W. Bush gave the Taliban an ultimatum to hand over Osama bin Laden. The Taliban refused. And in October, the U.S. led a campaign that drove the Taliban out of the major Afghan cities by the end of the year. Now, the U.N.-sponsored Bonn Conference, B-O-N-N, in 2001, established a process for political reconstruction that included the adoption of a new constitution, a presidential election in 2004, and a National Assembly election in 2005. In 2002... Ahmed Karzai became the interim president of Afghanistan. The Taliban continued to wage guerrilla warfare near the border with Pakistan. Now, in December 2004, Ahmed Karzai became the first democratically elected president of Afghanistan, and the National Assembly was inaugurated the following December. In February of 2009, President Obama ordered 17,000 additional troops to Afghanistan. In August 2009, President Karzai won re-election in a vote marred by fraud. In December 2009, President Obama issued orders to send another 30,000 troops into Afghanistan, bringing the total American force to about 100,000. Now, a couple of other interesting things to think about when it comes to Afghanistan. Afghanistan is the world's largest producer of opium. Everybody wonders where they get the money? Well, here it is. The Taliban and other anti-government groups participate in a, and profit from the opiate trade, which is a key source of revenue for the Taliban inside Afghanistan. Widespread corruption and instability impede counter-drug efforts, and most of the heroin consumed in Europe and Asia is derived from Afghan opium. So the Taliban has plenty of money to carry on their conflict. Also, something else to think about. The Palestinian terrorist group Hamas is congratulating the Taliban for their recent takeover of Afghanistan. In a statement, the militants say they welcome the defeat of the American occupation on all Afghan land and praise the Taliban's courageous leadership on this victory which was the culmination of its long struggle over the past 20 years. Now finally, in June, the Pentagon's top leaders said an extremist group like al-Qaeda may be able to regenerate in Afghanistan and pose a threat to the U.S. homeland within two years of the American military's withdrawal from the country. Two decades after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan because the Taliban harbored al-Qaeda leaders, Experts say the Taliban and al-Qaeda remain aligned, and other violent groups could also find safe haven under the new regime. 
Now, based on the evolving situation, officials now believe terror groups like Al-Qaeda may be able to grow much faster than expected. So there you have it, folks. I, just like you, have a lot of questions. Did we do the right thing by pulling out of Afghanistan? Did we just make a bad situation much worse? What about the plight of the Afghan women and men who supported us during the conflict? Do we just turn our backs on them? Have we now established a safe haven for future terrorist group with plans to attack the United States? Lots of good questions. I have no answers. Hi, folks. Great topic for today. Let me ask you, can you imagine being under the control of a government that has complete control of the economy, imposes huge taxes on its citizens, and is led by a bumbling, forgetful leader and his assistant who is totally incompetent and unprepared for the job? All this while completely ignoring the wishes of the people? Do you think I'm talking about our current situation here in the U.S.? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, guess what? These are exactly the same conditions that our forefathers experienced under King George III and his Prime Minister, Lord North, in the years leading up to the time of the American Revolution. Now, believe it or not, our forefathers did not immediately take up guns to fight the king. They were much smarter than that. They knew there was no way a handful of colonists could defeat the largest military force in the world at the time. Yet they came up with an amazing method of resistance that got the immediate attention of England and the British Parliament and forced the king and his prime minister to back down. What was their secret weapon? For that answer, we need a little history. Now in 1651, that's right, 1651, the British Parliament, in the first of what became known as the Navigation Acts, declared that only English ships would be allowed to bring goods into England and that the North American colonies could only export its commodities, such as tobacco and sugar, to England on English ships. Now, this effectively prevented the colonies from trading with other European countries. The act was followed by several others that imposed additional limitations on colonial trade and increased custom duties. Now came the secret weapon. They called them non-importation agreements. Today, we call them boycotts. Now, non-importation agreements, which came about really in 1765 through 1775, were a way to force British recognition of political rights through the application of economic pressure. Now, at the time, the colonists had suffered under the Navigation Acts, the Stamp Act of 1765, which was a tax on cards, dice, newspapers, and legal documents, and the Townsend Acts of 1767, which was a tax on paper, paint, lead, glass, and tea. Now, colonial non-importation associations were organized to boycott all English goods. In each case, British merchants and the manufacturers suffered huge reductions in trade with the colonies, and they now put pressure on Parliament to lift the restrictions on the colonies. Guess what, folks? It worked. The British businessmen marched on Parliament and said, You idiots are costing us a fortune. Parliament, facing a hostile electorate, repealed the acts. So guess what? Our first real conflict with England, we won it using boycotts. Now, where did we get this term boycott? 
Simply put, a boycott is a protest where the protesters do not buy a product or give money to a company. Instead of buying a certain product, they might also buy another, very similar product from a different company. Now the word boycott comes from the name of an English army captain by the name of Charles Boycott. Now, Boycott was in charge of looking after the land of a landlord in County Mayo, Ireland. The guy had 40,000 acres, and he hired Boycott to manage it for him. In 1880, the Irish tenants, the people who were renting, wanted their rent lowered. Boycott refused and threw them out of the land they had rented. Now, there was a group called the Irish Land League, but then proposed that instead of becoming violent, everyone in the community should stop doing business with Captain Boycott. The captain was soon isolated. No one helped him with the harvest. No one worked in his stables or in his house. Local businessmen no longer traded with him, and even the postman no longer delivered his mail. The Boycott affair was big news in Ireland, England, and elsewhere in the English-speaking world. His name's transformation into common term is attributed to a local priest who suggested using boycott to describe what was happening because ostracize was too complicated of a word for the local peasantry. Boycotting spread across Ireland. The word was adopted elsewhere, including non-English-speaking countries. The new word was included in the first edition of a new English dictionary based on historical principles published in 1888 later known as the Oxford English Dictionary. And so Captain Boycott lives on, having unwillingly lent his name to a time-honored tactic. So let's go back to our story. American cities and the colonies now implementing boycotts to resist unpopular British policies became a thing. The use of raw materials, goods produced in the colonies, and Yankee ingenuity were the order of the day. It was during this time the American colonies experimented with the notion of being self-sufficient and not relying on the mother country. The merchants and traders agreed to boycott British goods until the taxes on those goods were repealed. Some critical goods were exempt from the boycott, such as salt and hemp and duck canvases. Smuggling, however, was widespread. This was in direct violation of the Navigation Acts. Almost every American community benefited from the participation in smuggling of illegal goods obtained from Dutch, French, and Spanish merchants. Smuggling was not only a cheaper alternative to taxed British goods, but also served as an effective means to resist and undermine British policies. Boston had tons of smuggled goods and smugglers. Now, Sam Adams, John Hancock, and Paul Revere were all known as notorious Boston Patriot smugglers and were all proponents of the use of non-importation agreements and similar boycott tactics. The Stamp Act was repealed because of joint boycotts by American colonies. New York merchants first implemented the boycott to protest the Stamp Act, and they were able to persuade the merchants of other cities to do the same. Boston was one of the cities New York merchants persuaded to participate in the boycott agreement to combat the Stamp Act. As a result of the successful boycott and pressure from British merchants who were losing a fortune, England gave in and finally repealed the Stamp Act. The impact of the Boston boycotts and all similar agreements 
were significant. Approximately 60 merchants and traders signed the agreement on August 1, 1768, and within two weeks, all but 16 of Boston's merchants, traders, and business owners had joined the boycott. Boston tradesmen, artisans, and other business owners happily signed the agreement in hopes the boycott would generate business for them. Within months, almost every port and region within the 13 colonies adopted similar boycotts to protest and undermine the Townsend Revenue Act, although many southern merchants and traders, with loyalist leanings, refused to cooperate. Smuggling was rampant throughout the colonies. The effects felt by British merchants who traded with the American colonies were alarming. Merchants lost money shipping their goods to the colonies, where they would not be received. More often than not, the goods were never allowed ashore. If they were, they rotted on the docks or in warehouses, or were looted by the colonists. The situation was a nightmare for customs officials, who could not collect taxes on goods that were either not allowed ashore or were never sold. In response to the Boston boycotts, Parliament ultimately repealed the Townsend Revenue Acts, which were taxes on all these different commodities I talked about, paint, lead, glass, so on and so forth. But they left one tax, the tax on tea. The king insisted Parliament keep that one tax to prove to the colonies that they had not completely won. Now, the Boston boycotts of 1768 and the subsequent repeal of the Townsend Revenue Acts on all commodities except tea was a major cause leading to the December 16, 1773 Boston Tea Party. Now, with the passing of the Tea Act in May of 1773, the tea tax under the Townsend Revenue Act was still in effect. The tax, which was not repealed like the other taxes under the Townsend Acts, was one of the fundamental reasons why the Tea Act angered and mobilized colonists to protest and boycott the shipments of British East India Company tea. If the tea tax would have been repealed in 1770 with all the other taxes, in all probability the Boston Tea Party would have never happened. So folks, the boycott agreements in the years prior to the American Revolution were a very effective tactic to protest British policies and demonstrated to other colonies the potential for united action. As a result of the successful boycott, Boston started with the 1768 Boston Non-Importation Agreement. The First Continental Congress in 1774 would pass a colony-wide prohibition against any trade with Britain. Now I have to admit, the colonists did have a major problem. During this period, one-third of the colonists supported King George, one-third supported George Washington and the Patriots, and finally, a third didn't care one way or the other, just get off my mountain. So how do you enforce a boycott? The answer? A group known as the Sons of Liberty. Now, the American Battlefield Trust has a great website that talks about these guys. Who were the Sons of Liberty? Now, they were a secret underground society created due to the social and political fallout of the French and Indian War. Now, the war, which took place throughout the world, was just one part of a larger conflict called the Seven Years' War. Now, the French and Indian War, it wasn't the French fighting against the Indians. It was our colonists fighting against the French and the Indians, who had banded together. 
Now, coupled with the fighting throughout the globe, it nearly pushed the British Empire to the brink of financial collapse due to the increased spending needed to fight an international war. As a result, the British increased taxation on the colonies and stationed soldiers of the crown within the colonies. The British Empire needed money and goods for their empire, and they turned to the colonies for both. However, the Sons of Liberty made it their goal that the British received neither. The British Parliament rationalized that the fighting in North America against the French was to protect the colonists and their interests, and thus they should pay their share in taxes to help pay off the war debt. So the solution was to forcefully quarter soldiers with American colonists via the Quartering Act. This quartering also increased the required funds needed in order to sustain the lives of thousands of British soldiers now sent to the colonies, who had to be fed, out of pocket, by the colonists. Now the first of many taxes forced upon the American people were the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act, which we talked about earlier. Once the Stamp Act passed, a secret group called the Loyal Nine the precursor to the Sons of Liberty, gathered crowds around the famous Liberty Tree in Boston. The crowd, angered by the Stamp Act and provoked by the encouragement of the Loyal Nine, began rioting throughout the streets of Boston. These riots targeted the taxable goods and the tax collectors, which put many colonial officials at risk of being tarred and feathered or even killed. Now, the rioters also destroyed an immeasurable amount of property. In one case, Boston rioters raided the home of Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson and stole an estimated 250,000 pounds worth of possessions. The Loyal Nine, having sparked resistance, turned to publishing patriotic ideas in the Boston Gazette. Eventually, the Loyal Nine began signing their political dissent as the Sons of Liberty, thus establishing a much larger resistance group. Now, what was originally organized in Boston by a local brewer turned politician, you know him as Sam Adams, quickly snowballed into a larger network of resistance to the British crown. With the coordination of various Sons of Liberty chapters, the Stamp Act was repealed within one year of it being enacted. However, this victory came at a price. The British Parliament passed something called the Declaratory Act when they repealed the Stamp Act. And the Declaratory Act was a f more of a formal threat than an actual piece of legislation, as the Act stated that the British King and Parliament have the power to enact any and all legislation onto the colonies. This Act only served to reinforce the Sons of Liberty's idea of no taxation without representation, as written by a fellow member, James Otis, Jr., under Samuel Adams and other members of the Sons of Liberty, the boycott was enforced throughout Boston and the surrounding Massachusetts area. Anyone who dared sell British goods risked their store being vandalized or worse. Even their physical safety was at risk as the Sons of Liberty turned to violence to threaten shopkeepers that did not comply with the boycott. Eventually, the patriotic resistance to British rule became too much to handle and revolution and war was inevitable. When lawmakers of Virginia gathered in 1775 to discuss negotiation with the British king, Sons of Liberty member Patrick Henry exclaimed to the Second Virginia Convention, Give me liberty or give me death, thus cementing the American stance for independence from British rule 
and initiating the American commitment to the Revolutionary War. Now, when colonial legislatures opposed British policies, many king-appointed governors simply dissolved those assemblies. Unofficial groups such as local committees, countywide conventions, and congresses quickly became central to the organization of the Patriots. They relied on economic networks that included farmers, traders, artisans, working men, and women to create a new political movement. The inclusive nature of the movement seemed to show that ordinary free people were capable of having a stronger voice in politics, and they did it through boycotts. So there you have it, folks. When faced with a government completely out of control, our forefathers turned to boycotts and it worked. Would the same tactic work today? What if everyone refused to simply not watch ABC News, or patronize a certain coffee shop, or eat a certain brand of ice cream? It worked in the 1700s. Would it work now? Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this segment. Thanks for listening to True History with Professor Jim Paisley. See you next time.